0: So we have classic readings this morning, obviously, for Pentecost, I think especially when we think of Pentecost as laid out for us in Acts 2, we can sometimes tend to think of the filling of the Holy Spirit as an invitation to a kind of supercharged kind of Christianity versus a basic Christianity, like, you know, you can have a basic Christianity that you know, you just said the sinner's prayer so when you die, you can go to heaven. But if you want sort of a supercharged Christianity, well, then you might, you know, you might want to consider something to do with the Holy Spirit. Or maybe we think of it as, well, you can have sort of a dry or lukewarm sort of Christianity, or you could have, you know, more passionate Christianity that somehow is more charismatic or Pentecostal or something. But then that makes us somehow think that these first friends of Jesus and the crowd around them who are being filled with the Spirit, that there must have been something wrong with them, but, or you know something they were lacking. But I think it's important to say that I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think they were awestruck, and they may have been a little confused in that awestruck sort of way. I mean, I mean come on, you think about it. How would you like to explain everything that just happened to a bunch of ordinary people? <laughs> And what it is that Jesus told them to wait for, right? I mean, that's a task. And so, but I don't think we should think of these people as somehow, you know, significantly deficient in some way. They were praying, worshiping, joyful, followers of the risen and ascended Jesus. Probably better to think of them as simply waiting further instructions. Got that? Like, okay, Lord, what's next? And the power to carry those instructions out. That's probably a better way to think of them. We know we're in a pivot point here. We're we're barely understanding what just happened to us, not only over the last three and a half years, but over the last 50 days. We're barely maybe starting to come to grips with that. We're aware that Jesus said there was something more to come. And so they're living in a pivotal place and knowing that we're to carry this on. Well, of course, Pentecost doesn't arise out of the blue. It, It arises with some parallels from the Old Testament For instance, you know, the Pentecost as a Jewish feast would have been 50 days after Passover, where they would have brought a grain offering, both of thanks, that grain was growing, but also an offering of prayer that they would have an abundant harvest. Or Jews might have thought of it in a more Mosaic way, that Moses went up to the mountain and came down with the law. Jesus has ascended into heaven and now sends the Spirit as the animating ability to keep the law. Now, don't think of keep the law as I must stop at this stop sign. As I've said to you probably many times, think of Torah as God's guidance, his instruction for his people. And now think of the sending of the Spirit as the capacity to live into that which Torah intended. You see, that's a very different thing than keeping law as we think of it. Like, I have to pay my taxes by April 15th. Well, unless I apply for an extension right Are you feeling me here there's there, there's those sort of approaches to law but then there's an approach to instruction to a more fully orbed sense of Torah which Old Testament law that gets at what were the purposes of Torah and coming of the spirit is the the animating energizing empowering ability to live into what God meant for humanity faithful Jews and Waiting for this to happen might have thought of this was the fulfillment of uh, Genesis 12:13, that God is now empowering everything that was promised to Abraham. Uh, now surprisingly, though, it's coming to the whole world. Uh, they may have thought of Daniel and his 70 weeks, and thinking that, oh, a part of the inbreaking of this messianic age is the coming of the spirit. They may have thought of Ezekiel's dry bones. And the breath of God being breathed into those bones and them coming to life again. And as we saw in our reading in Acts, they certainly, at least through Peter, were thinking about Joel. Now this carries on into the New Testament. When you have John the Baptist as the major pivot from kind of the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? So you have creation and fall and creation of the calling of Abraham, the creation of Israel, patriarchs, judges, kings prophets, and then you get to the last, you might say, of this line of prophets, John the Baptist, and he is aware that he is a pivotal point in history, and he says something of himself and of Jesus that's very important to Pentecost. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is especially targeted to Israel, that now you rethink everything in light of the coming of the Messiah. But after me comes one who's more powerful than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So this is the main thing I want to alert you to this morning. And that is the biblical narrative from which the Spirit arises. So just when you catch this. It's very simple. He does not arise firstly from our sense of a felt need to have a supercharged Christianity or anything like that. It, it is, it, it, our need gets swept up into this, But it's not rooted in that, and therefore, it's clearly not rooted in a denomination. It's not rooted in Pentecostalism. It's not rooted in charismatic Christianity. It's not firstly wedded to renewal. At best, those things are visible signs of what happens to God's people when the Spirit comes within the narrative from which He naturally arises. So, you've heard me say many times, I don't have to go over it again this morning, that when Jesus announced the gospel, the first words out of his mouth, Jesus said, This is the good news of God. First words out of his mouth was a deep self consciousness of arising within a story when he says, The time is fulfilled. And he means something very much like that big long story I just told you was kind of all preliminary, it was all kind of pregnancy. And now the moment has come in which all that is being fulfilled. And this, I would want to say to you, suggest to you, that this is how you should think of the coming of the Spirit, that he arises within that story, and his coming is, in a sense, a further fulfilling of that story, and that it gives capacity to the church to live that story out until Jesus comes again and we have new heavens and new earth. So if you think of the inbreaking of the kingdom through the Christ event, now you think of the inbreaking of the spirit uh, in what we call the, tr- the age of the church that continues this story on. And, and the reason I sort of bang on about that a little bit is I, 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 want to do, try, I want to try to do two things this morning. I want to highly contextualize the coming of the spirit while simultaneously making it a personal experience. But it's never merely personal. And it's never merely denominational in that sense. Therefore, Luke 24, 49, you know, where Jesus says, I'm sending you what my father's promised, but stay in the city until you've uh, been clothed with power from on high. Again, that's a major pivot point in the unfolding of this story. Because Jesus knows this story's not going anywhere until the Spirit is sent. And when the Spirit is sent, it's sent in continuity to that story. So think John 20. In the manner in which the Father sent me, so I send you. What happens next? At least the way John tells the story. What happens next? Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In the context of what? In the same way that my Father sent me and I arose within this story. So now you are receiving the Spirit so that you continue on in this God word story that has necessary communal and personal aspects to it. So, you know, if we were one of the first followers of Jesus, we might have wondered, well, why, Lord? Why wait for the Spirit to come? Like, okay, we heard you teach, we saw what you did, why can't we just go out and mimic you? Right? Now, with 2,000 years of theological reflection, we all know the answer to that question. But think of being there without 2,000 years of historical reflection. And, you know, why wouldn't that's what other followers of rabbis did? They went out and tried to mimic their rabbi in his kind of life and to teach what he taught. They didn't have to wait for some power to come from high. So why are these apprentices, these students of Jesus any different? What is it that they're waiting for? And this I think is a a very important thing to say to put Pentecost and especially our personal interactions with the third person of the Trinity in their proper space. And so I wanna say this, that the purposes of God in a kind of fully-orbed, others-oriented discipleship requires a power that matches those intentions. Did you catch that? It's the purposes of God that this is rooted in. And it's precisely those purposes to have a fully-orbed, others-oriented church that is apprenticing itself to Jesus, it requires a power that enables those intentions. And it just alerts us that we need power and guidance and authority, gifts, character transformation, as Paul says uh, in Galatians 5 about the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit. So just being here this morning with you and being kind of caught up in um, what we were singing, it reminded me, and I only say this as a testimony. I do not say this as if I'm some sort of model. It's just an honest testimony. I have a very full life, and I have a life that has its share of suffering. There's hardly a day that goes by that I'm not caught up into somebody suffering. If not my own, someone else's. There's literally not a day that goes by that I don't get a phone call about somebody who's suffering somewhere in some way. And that doesn't even include the news from the BBC. Right, I mean, that breaks into our life as well. But I have enough of my own personal stuff And so I'm just telling you, this as a testimony. Somebody, you know, just turned 61, been trying to do this since I was 19. You know what I find myself praying for all the time as I go through my life? So like just um, last weekend when I missed you when I was in Austin, in like less than 48 hours, I did like seven things. You know, like seven meetings and all kinds of talks and personal appointments and stuff. You know what my constant prayer is? For presence. Lord make me present. Lord give me love. I've sort of come at this time in my life to take my gifts for granted. And I mean that in the best possible way. Are you feeling me here? Like I never stand here and hope to God the gift of teaching will come. I mean, right? I mean, this is just this is just what I do. Right? And lots of you can understand cuz you have your own gifts. But I realize now that no, you know the gifts are important. But what I really want is for the Spirit of Christ to make Himself present through me, and that can't be done if I'm not present. If I'm worried about the thing I just did or focused on the thing that's coming, I can't be present to that moment, and love requires presence, and love requires time. And so, come on, feel me here. I can't have time in my own head and heart space if I'm in the past or the future. And so, I just, I constantly find myself saying as we were singing, give me your gift of presence. Let that flow through me so that I can be the gift of presence to this very rich and full life that I have. And not just my work, but family and, you know, kids and friends. It's a really big deal. So it starts happening, and Peter is appointed by the Spirit to be the spokesman, and I just want you to notice how he stands up and says, let me explain, (laughs) right? This thing that's breaking out requires explanation, and as I've already said to you, the explanation is not first and foremost doctrinal, as important as that is. There's nobody who loves or cares about doctrine more than I do. I just want you to note... That Peter addresses the crowd in a narrative way. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he begins to tell a story. This is what was spoken, you can look in your text, by the prophet Joel that in the last days, and this is where the pennies beginning to drop with them. Like, they've they've been thinking about the implications of what John the Baptist said and what Jesus has been teaching. They've been thinking about that for a long time, now at least three and a half years, and they know that in a Jewish mindset, this isn't the last day. That's the day when God's judgment finally comes and everything's put to rights and have the beginning of a new heaven and new earth. They know it's not that day, but they see that it's the beginning of the last days where God had promised through Joel... And roughly in other places as well, that he would pour out his spirit on all people, and that sons and daughters would prophesy, young men would see visions, old men will dream dreams. And to a Jewish mindset, this this just pictures God being present, communicating with and to and through his people for the good of everybody. So even on my servants, Joel said, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, Prophesy here doesn't mean to act weird and, you know, stand on chairs and point at people and change your tone of voice and, you know, act prophecy-like or prophetic-like, whatever that might be. I I would rather you just think of prophecy as the capacity to know from God's point of view. It's the ability to know reality from a Godward angle. Now, that's never gonna get rid of our native subjectivity. In other words, it doesn't mean that the church is now somehow sort of radically objective but in that moment when you have a gift of prophecy when when we're actually seeing things from god's point of view that is enabled by the spirit and this is really it works very nicely of course with what jesus said in the upper room it's better for you that i go away because if i go away the spirit will come and when the spirit comes to the whole global church made up of men and women and young and old and rich and free and slave and poor and Scythian and barbarian, when when the spirit comes to that church, he'll do what I've been doing for you. He'll lead you into all truth. Well, a way that he does that is he gives us gifts of prophecy or wisdom or knowledge or discerning of spirit. He allows us to see things from his point of view. And the Jews hearing this would have understood this is the remarkable presence of God that we had hoped for and that Jesus had spoken about in the upper room. So then what's a Pentecostal response to this? And we get a hint for it in, if you look at John 7, where Jesus says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that same notion of everyone is included in when Jesus says, come to me and drink right? Come to me and drink. Like, place your confidence in me and the flow of God that you see happening through me. Come and drink from that. And then I want you to note this word, whoever, because now here's where that which is most fundamentally God word, and we could even say secondarily a peopled thing, right? Like the people of God, the nation, well, the nation of Israel, the people, and don't think of the modern nation state, but the, the people of God, so you have the, the essential Godwardness, the people of God, but now Jesus is doing something very important and that has been hard for the church to hold together and nearly impossible now after hundreds and years of American autonomy. It's very hard to hold these things together, but it's important that we do so. Again, an essential Godwardness, a communalness, but now a deep particularity. Picture Jesus standing on the stairs of that temple. Looking at a crowd of people, using this amazing analogy of the work of God flowing through me can be yours, such that out of your innermost being would come gushing torrents of living water. And I now, sort of playful in my own mind, uh, think of Jamie Smith and Jesus standing there together and Jesus saying something like, so what do you want? What do you love? Here's what's happening. This is the pivot in this story. Whoever believes in me, so you hear there the, the, the importance of individual. Just take the ism off, not individualism. But you, you hear the importance here of the individual. And so while, of course, Israel was a people, and while community is, of course, core to both Israel and the church, this is a call to personal response. And so in a moment when Beth leads us in prayer and we have time to minister one to another, which I always love Pentecost. You know, the thing I think I love most about Pentecost is watching you all pray for each other. It's just so lovely to me to see you all laying hands on each other and praying for each other. But I just want you to know that is a personal response. And it's an aspect of our liturgy which is fundamentally communal. But this morning you have that beautiful opportunity as an individual to say, yes, I feel a hunger and a thirst. Now, either you do or you don't, and no judgment. You, you either, you, so nobody needs to feel like I have to participate in this or somebody's gonna think some badly of me, not at all. If we start saying that, then we miss what was deeply important to Jesus, that whoever believes in me. And this too is connected to the overall story of God. Uh, perhaps the most famous evangelistic text, in quotes, you know, evangelistic text of the Old Testament is very similar, Isaiah 55. If you're thirsty, come and drink water. If you don't have any money, come and eat what you want. Drink wine and milk without paying a cent. Why waste your money on that which isn't really f- food? Or why work hard for something that doesn't satisfy? Rather, come drink. Or just remember, let me help you remember here, the residences of this that are all through the scriptures. Remember Jesus with the woman at the well? And she's, you know, kind of arguing with him, like, you know, this is Jacob's well, and, you know, this is important to us. And remember Jesus says, anyone who drinks of this water, and maybe hear him sort of gently chiding her like this, anybody who drinks of a mere historical connection? Or remember Jesus saying to a group of religious people one day, don't claim you have Abraham as father as if that gets you somewhere. Remember that? So hear him sort of gently saying Yeah, you can't just claim Abraham as your father. You can't just claim a connection to Jacob and this well that was built in his name because if you keep drinking of merely that story, you're going to just keep thirsting again. But anybody who drinks of me, meaning the fulfillment of that story in me, will never thirst again. The water that I give them will be to them like a flowing fountain flowing through them, giving eternal life. Or think of Revelation 22, the end of the story. John writes, the angel showed me a river. Again, you have the image of water. Showed me a river of water that was crystal clear and its waters gave life. The river came from the throne where God and the lamb were seated. And then it flowed down the middle of the city's main street giving life and healing wherever it went. And of course here, the analogies of water and spirit are very similar. They both point to God's personal, refreshing, empowering presence. And so now I want you to picture Jesus again high up on these steps of the temple at this great feast where faithful Jews from everywhere would have been gathered. You know, the water pots behind him, if you can picture that. And he kind of shouts over this crowd, this invitation. Anyone who wants the water of life to bubble up within and overflow for the sake of others, come to me and you can be a part of this new creation beginning now through the spirit-filled people of God that's meant to go to the whole earth so just picture him looking over a crowd and, and seeing in what we now think of as sort of Pauline ways, right? We, we think of those passages in, in Galatians and in Ephesians where, you know, Paul talks about the diversity of the church. And so we, we kind of think uh, those things now in Pauline terms, right? Like slave, free, women, old, young, right? But, but picture Jesus looking over a crowd just like that and seeing in real time what Paul later reflects on, right? You, you need to picture Paul reflecting on a reality, where Jesus looked over a crowd of broken and pious and young and old and slave and free and rich and poor and male and female, very cognizant of that Old Testament story I told you, very cognizant of Abraham and Israel, of Ezekiel, of Joel. and He looks over that crowd. This is where particularity is so important, right? What you love about Rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, what you love about that, that part of you that resonates with that is not possible without the particularity that makes him true. You See what I'm saying? So you can't have one without the other. You can't have the glory of young and old together if you don't have young and old. Are you feeling me? So Jesus looks over that diversity and he knows that the spirit of God is about to come to all of them and flow through all of them. So you might say that the orientation is broad, but the focus is narrow. Jesus focuses this on whoever believes me and who wants what animated me. Think of Jesus' relational reliance with the Father, right? I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. Okay, that relational reliance Jesus knows he stands at a bridge in which that relational reliance through the Spirit is meant to be mediated to this highly diverse group of people. I can hardly think of anything more beautiful. Just stop thinking about the Spirit in ways that are off-putting to you. And just think of the personal presence of Jesus being mediated to you through the Spirit so that you can live a life of the same sort of relational reliance. And as you come to rely on him, he too will give you gifts. And he'll give you sort of habitual gifts, patterns of gifts, things that you might feel are sort of constituted to you. But on the other hand, he'll give you surprising gifts, gifts that just you sort of needed the moment. And you may never be used by God again that way the rest of your life, but in that moment you were. Are, Are you tracking with me here? I want you to picture a beautiful, deep, relational reliance and just hear me say that that kind of relational reliance demands a personalness to it it doesn't make community go away and i'm going to teach on this for a couple weeks in a few weeks so we can come back to this because it's not easy but i want you to hear the deep personalness in whoever him looking over that crowd and a part of that whoever is it doesn't matter if you're old and you feel set aside by society It doesn't matter if you're young and you think no one thinks what you think counts. It doesn't matter if you're a woman and you're basically excluded from most of the rest of society, not in my kingdom, women, uh, slaves, poor, blessed are you. You're, You're caught up in this. So Jesus shouts to anyone who wants to be in on this. I wish we could wonder a little bit more together. Why not the chief priest? Why not the Sanhedrin? Why weren't they there? Where were the other religious leaders? And I think this is why we have to hold in our mind a loving personalness, because this gets right to what do you want? And the chief priest wanted nothing to do with this Jesus movement. Where was the Sanhedrin? Precisely doing their own thing. No vision for a relational reliance on the God who was manifesting himself through Christ. They didn't want it. They didn't love it. They had no intuitive desire for it. And in your own personal formation in Christ, you might find yourself in a place where you have to cultivate a little bit of that. Fine, it's okay. I mean, God just takes you right where you are. You, know, you have some confusion that you need to deal with, or you know, maybe you've had some off-putting things that you need to go through a time of deconstructing before you can construct a more positive relational reliance on the Spirit. That is all completely fine. But the taproot of that is what do you want? What do you want to place your confidence in? Right? Jesus stood up and said, anybody who believes in me, come to me and drink. And out of your belly will come gushing torrents of living water. I don't remember in which book Eugene said this, but somewhere Peterson has written, the whole, as like kind of an analogy to help us see what's going on here, that the Holy Spirit is conceiving the life of Jesus in us. In much the same way, the Holy Spirit conceived the life of Jesus in Mary. And what did Mary say? Yes, yes, Father, may it be unto me as you will. That's what Pentecost requires. It, it just requires of us a yes. You know, a healthy skepticism wouldn't have, dealt, wouldn't have worked for Mary, right? You know, not even a, well, I'm open, Lord, But what you saw in Mary and what Eugene wants us to have as a mental model here is an expectant faith, an attentive presence, and a submissive obedience. Because as I said when we started, this is fundamentally a Godward thing. And that God longs for spirit empowerment in and through the church. This is why Luke 11, we have ask, seek, knock, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit if you simply say yes and ask and receive and practice the presence of God?